You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, who was sent here in the fullness of time, the Son of God, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and thus fulfill our holy calling to which God has called us according to His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is the gift that is Jesus to this world, the gift of Jesus to this world. He is a gift that we've just celebrated during Christmas. And of course, our celebrations don't stop now, but they continue throughout the whole year because Jesus is still this gift. Jesus is not the gift who had been given, but Jesus is the gift who is being given in this exact moment. There is not just a Christmas day, in the Christmas season, but we are in the Christmas age of world history and untold peoples from untold uh, years um, in untold ways have, have longed for such a gift in such an age. You've longed for this. Because apart from God, We abound in darkness and we are deprived of hope. Apart from God, every human soul is fully lost and meaningless. And deep in each of our persons, we know what that's like. We know what it's like to be distant from God and we know what it's like to want so badly to bridge that distance. Whether it's the pursuit of worldly pleasure or the embrace of man-made religion, the whole story of this world in one sense is our desperate attempt to find God. We all just want to find God. We want to experience the happiness that would be in His presence. We want to know the purpose that would come from His design. We all want that. And collectively, we as mankind have searched for that down a trillion dead-end roads, and we've never found what we're looking for down all the roads that we've pursued. And then God just comes and says, here, here's what you're looking for. Here is that gift. And he gives. That's why it's called a gift. And the gift is Jesus. Jesus is the voice of God to us. He's the way of God for us. He is the reign of God in us and over us. And he is new in that no gift like him has ever been given before. And he is final in that no gift like him will ever be given again. Jesus is the ultimate, definitive, world-changing, history-defining gift. And he's here, standing right here in front of your heart's face. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about your heart as having a face before, okay? 
But try to think that way for a minute. Try to imagine that your heart has a face and Jesus is, is right here, right? He's, he's here. Jesus is standing right in front of the deepest part of you right now. And the question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with that? When Jesus is standing right here, are you going to try to look for something else? Like, where else would you want to go when Jesus is standing right here? Welcome to the book of Hebrews. That's the book of Hebrews. For most of this entire year, on Sunday mornings, we're going to be in this book. And this book, the book of Hebrews, is a book of Jesus in your heart's face. Historically, the book of Hebrews has been called a letter, although it's, it's unlike any other letter in the New Testament because it doesn't start like a letter at all. There's, there's no sender that's mentioned. There's no addressee that's mentioned. There's no greeting at all. The book just starts with Jesus right here. That's how the book starts. According to some clues that we'll get to later in the book, most likely the book of Hebrews was actually a sermon for the early church. And you may have heard this before, but if you were to, to sit down and read the entire book of Hebrews, or if you were to hear Hebrews read aloud, it takes about 45 minutes, which is like a solid, like good, girthy sermon length, you know, 45 minutes. That's the book of Hebrews. It's a sermon. Think about it as a sermon. The prose in this book is careful. The arguments are beautiful, the repetitions are strategic, and Jesus is front and center the whole way through. What we read about the glory of Jesus in these first four verses gets echoed throughout the entire book. And we have this whole year to see how the logic of Hebrews unfolds. But as we get started today, I at least want to give a broad introduction to this book. And I, I think we could summarize the overall message of the book of Hebrews to simply be a solution to a problem. Just think that. This book is a solution to a problem. So what's the problem? And what's the solution? This is a two-point sermon, all right? This is the first question we're looking at here. What's the problem? This is point one. The problem is the possibility of our apostasy. That's the problem. Now, when I use this word apostasy, I want you to think the opposite of endurance. If endurance means to press on and to hold fast, apostasy means to turn back and to fall away. Endurance means to persevere in faith. Apostasy means to abandon faith. And abandoning faith is a real temptation for all of us in real time. 
It's a problem. It's a temptation. It's possible. And there are some very deep theological waters that we can get into here. We're going to go there throughout this series. But briefly for now, I just want to say, when it, when it comes to apostasy, it's a little brief word on this. When it comes to apostasy, we know plainly from 1 John chapter 2 that those who fall away from the faith were never actually in the faith. 1 John 2. If you end up abandoning, this goes for all of us in here. If you end up abandoning Jesus, you only prove that you never actually knew him in the first place. But if you do know him, if you are born again, if you are united to Jesus, it means you're secure forever. Jesus himself said about his people, he said about his sheep in John chapter 10, verse 27, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is saying, I've got you. That's what he says to his people. I've got you. And that is an amazing promise for us. And so here, just in brief, as we're getting started, at a high level, I want you to get this, okay? At a high level, these are the basics. If you fall away from Jesus, you were never actually in. If you are truly in, you will never fall away. That makes sense? Just, I want you to get that. If you fall away, it means you were not in. If you are in, you won't fall away. Got it? We, we have eternal security in our salvation, in the salvation of Jesus, and that should be peace to us, man. Like, we, we should take comfort in that. We can rest here in Jesus. He tells us to. We should. We can. And at the same time, we should beware of the ways that the truth of eternal security has been misapplied. And I saw this growing up in the church, okay? So I, growing up in the church where I did, there was a teaching that I heard all the time that said, once saved, always saved. I don't know if that's a phrase that you, you've heard before and that different circles that you've been a part of or whatever your background is. But where I grew up, this is, a, this is a big deal among Christians in some parts of the world. Once saved, always saved. It's a big deal. I heard it all the time growing up, and it is absolutely true at face value. It's true. Once you are saved in that God resurrects you from spiritual death, if God saves you, you are always saved. God, do, God does not make you spiritually alive and then reverses that. It's not how it works. When you are saved, you are always saved. Everybody hear that? It's true. The misapplication of this truth, though, has to do with the meaning of being saved. And in a lot of places, and I, I've, I, I, I saw this firsthand, a lot of times being saved 
just meant that you had to walk down an aisle during an altar call and repeat some words, pray a prayer. Being saved was reduced down to basically doing a thing and checking a box. And people would do that thing and they would check that box and then you could just go live however you wanted and have nothing to do with Jesus at all. And I, you know, I say this um, uh, with, with a lot of sobriety and I say it with some, like a sickness to my stomach, okay? Um, there are countless people in our country, especially where I'm from, countless people who blatantly deny Jesus and how they live. They care little about Jesus. They're not actively involved with his people. They're not part of a church. But they and everyone around them thanks they're Christians because they repeated some words one time. They think that they were once saved and therefore they think that they're always saved. And you can see how dangerous that is, right? This is a deadly error, deadly. And it's one that we as a church, we expressly reject this error through the practice of church discipline, which is what Jesus instructs us to do. This is how the Bible instructs us. If you say you belong to Jesus, but your behavior repeatedly denies him and you don't repent, the local church is meant to help you by saying, we don't think you actually belong to Jesus. That's a help, do you see? That's, that's a help. Because remember, when we're saved, we're not just saved from, but we're saved to. We're saved to God. Saving faith in Jesus is to receive him as Lord and Savior and treasure. And that means we worship him. We cling to him. We surrender our lives to him as our only hope. And yes, he forgives us and he unites us to himself and we are in. We're truly in. And if we're in, we're secure. We're saved and we will not fall away. But how do we know? That's the question. How do we know that we're in? How do we know that we're saved? That's the question, right? How do we know? Well, we know that we're saved because God keeps us in that we believe. We believe him. We press on. We hold fast. We enduring faith, we trust right now, in this moment, we trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the fulfillment of all God's promises to us. Right now, we believe that. Right now, we renounce Satan in all his works and in all his ways. And right now, in this moment, with God's help, we want to follow Jesus and obey him as our Lord, Savior, and treasure. We know we're saved because we believe that right now. 
That's true of us in this moment. And, and the exhortation for us to believe that, to press on in believing that, to hold fast to that, that exhortation is a vital exhortation in the Christian life. And it's an exhortation that we see repeated in the book of Hebrews over and over and over again. Hold fast, cling to him, trust him, embrace him. That's the book. Because apostasy is a possibility. People have fallen away. People do fall away. And so don't, don't do that. And I want to right now go as quickly as I can to the solution. But I need to say another word about apostasy because I just, I want to pop the hood for a minute and talk more about what apostasy is and how apostasy works. And I want to just summarize it this way in terms of how we imagine it, how we think about it. Imagine apostasy as always being a pull, a pull from something else, okay? It's a pull. We, we say it's falling away, you're being pulled away, okay? I'll put it like this. Nobody abandons Jesus because they pursued Jesus and found him lacking. People abandon Jesus because they suspect that they will have it better somewhere else. Jesus doesn't push people away from him. But people are pulled away from him, pulled away from him by something else. And for the original audience here of Hebrews, that something else was Judaism. The first hearers of this sermon were Jewish Christians. So they were Jewish people who had heard the gospel, embraced the gospel, trusted in Jesus as their Messiah. They had become Christians. But then some of them started to fall away from the gospel back into Judaism. And and most likely there was probably some type of persecution that was going on. Uh, Christians were beginning to take some heat. And apparently the pull away from Jesus was this short-sighted idea that if I leave Jesus and come over here, things will go better for me. That was the, that was the idea. They, they just thought, they thought, things will be better for me apart from Jesus and his people. So I'm going to leave Jesus and come over here. That was the pool. See, that was the pool. And pools like that, they still happen. They happen today. It's probably not Judaism for us like it was for this first audience, but there, there are something else's all around us in this world. And, and that something else, whatever that something else is, it does not encourage you toward Jesus, but it pulls you away from Jesus. And it's not necessarily hostile things. Sometimes it's just the stuff of life. It's the stuff that Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 4, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And and listen to this, the desire for other things, something else, something else. There are all kinds of these something else's all around us. It's, It's really anything that makes being a Christian seem uncomfortable or inconvenient. Uncomfortable 
or inconvenient. You know, in our language, the way we talk, we, we have this phrase, we say, we refer to people who might be nominal Christians. You know, you heard that phrase before? When we say nominal Christian, we're talking about someone who claims to be a Christian, but probably really isn't a Christian. They're not really serious about Jesus. Where I grew up, um, the word we used, the phrase we used was backslidden Christian. Backslidden, right? And it's appropriate image, you know? You're kind of falling away, but we're not sure if you've fallen away. You're kind of in this not, you know, where, where, you know that sort of deal. Someone recently taught me the, the word a creaster. You guys know what a creaster is? It's a, it's, a, it's a Christian who like only shows up um, for like Christmas and Easter. You get it? I Googled it. It's a thing. You can go, a, a creaster, you get it. It's just, you're, you're, you're just basically a Christian in, in, in the bare minimum external types of ways. You know. Whatever the category is, whatever we, we say, whatever it might be, the so-called nominal Christian is actually just a non-Christian who doesn't know it yet because they've not been tested. They've not been pulled. They've not felt a pull. Following Jesus has not been uncomfortable for them or inconvenient for them yet. But it will be. You're going to get pulled. You're going to get pulled. And many of us know what that's like, and some of us now know what that's like. You know what it's like in your life right now to have things pulling you away from Jesus. And the book of Hebrews will tell you, hold fast. Don't fall away. Hold fast. It's a problem. The something else is the pull. The possibility of apostasy is a problem. And so what do we do? What is the solution to that problem? Here it is. The solution to the problem of our possible falling away is to hold fast to Jesus. The solution is to hold fast to Jesus. That's the second point. The solution is to hold fast to Jesus. And you might be thinking, wait a minute. So you're saying that the problem is that we could fall away. The solution is to hold fast. That's like saying the solution to falling away is to not fall away. Is that what I'm saying? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying do the opposite of falling away. Hold fast. Well, hold fast to what? Hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to the hope that we have in Jesus, which we do by remembering him, by seeing him. That's the purpose of Jesus in your heart's face. That's why Hebrews starts the way it does. That's the reason we started that way this morning. In the book of Hebrews, we're not first bombarded by the problem. We're not. Instead, we open this book, and the book of Hebrews starts by saying, here he is. Look at him. Do you see who he is? Do you see what he has done? That's the book of Hebrews. Jesus in your heart's face. That's what's going on in these first four verses. These first four verses 
are absolutely glorious. In just these four verses, verses 1 to 4, we read 10 facts about Jesus. 10 facts. He is the one through whom God has spoken. He is appointed by God to be the heir of all things. He is the one through whom God created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He made purification for sins. He afterwards sat down at the right hand of the Father. He is superior to angels. He has inherited a more, a most excellent name. Historically, in church history, it was the reformer John Calvin who first elaborated on the fact that Jesus as the Messiah means that Jesus serves in a threefold office, okay? I'm gonna get theological for a second, hang with me, okay? Jesus is the promised Messiah who has come. Jesus as the Messiah is his office, but Calvin says that this office enjoined upon Christ by the Father consists of three parts. Here they are. Jesus as Messiah is prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. And and later, after Calvin, Reformed theologians have developed this idea, this teaching. It's in all the Reformed catechisms. It's It's in our favorite Reformed catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 31, why is Jesus called Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one? Answer, because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. Two, he is our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father. Three, he is our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. You heard it there. You heard the three words there. The catechism explains that Jesus is our chief prophet, our high priest, and our eternal king. Those three things are the three parts of his messianic office. And what they do is they give us a fuller picture of how Jesus is our savior. And get this, those three parts, Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, they are all throughout the book of Hebrews. You will hear those words more this year, prophet, priest, and king. We see them all throughout this book, and we actually see them, all three of them, right here in these first four verses, right away. We see that Jesus is the prophet. God has spoken to us definitively in Jesus, verse 2. We see that Jesus is the priest. He has made purification for sins, verse 3. But the resounding thing that we see here, the part that shines the brightest in verses 1 to 4, is that Jesus is our king. We see his supremacy here. We see that he reigns. We just look at his preeminence. Jesus, he inherits all things, and all things were made through him. 
That's another way of saying Jesus is the beginning and the end. He's the A and the Z, right? The Alpha and the Omega, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Radiance of God's glory, that means that, 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 that Jesus is the ray of light beaming forth from the, the perfections of God. That is why the Nicene Creed calls Jesus the light from light. The exact imprint of God's nature. That means that Jesus is the precise representation of the heart of God. It means that God is Christ-like, and in Him there is no un-Christ-likeness. Look at His royal sovereignty. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of His power, by speaking. This means that that Jesus himself is dependent upon nothing, but instead all things are dependent upon him. Like what a king, right? What a king Jesus is. But then what makes his kingship clearest in verse three here? What makes it clearest that he is king is, is when we read in verse three that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Simple sentence, but a very big deal because this phrase about Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father is an allusion back to Psalm 110 verse 1 when David writes, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You probably heard that verse before, that Old Testament verse from Psalm 110. That is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, when the apostle Peter is preaching his groundbreaking sermon at Pentecost, at the conclusion of that sermon, he quotes Psalm 110 verse 1. That's the crescendo, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 verse 1 was also the verse that Jesus quoted to finally shut the mouths of the Pharisees. This is in Matthew 22. The Pharisees were all together, and Jesus asked them a question. He said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees said to him, he's the son of David. And that's right. The Messiah, everyone knew, the Messiah would be a son of David. He would come in the lineage of David. But then Jesus said to them, but how is it, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him the Messiah? How does David call him Lord? Okay, question. Where does David call the Messiah Lord? Psalm 110. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 110. Jesus quotes it. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, until I put your enemies beneath your feet. See, kingship reigning. And then Jesus said to the Pharisees, look, if then David calls the Messiah Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? You get the question? It stumped the Pharisees. The Pharisees were speechless. Matthew tells us that, quote, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Why? 
Because Psalm 110 gets at the heart of who the Messiah is. There is an answer to the question that Jesus asked. It wasn't a rhetorical question. Jesus asked, how can David call his son the Messiah? How can David call his son Lord? And the answer is that it's because the Messiah is not just the son of David. He is the son of God. The Messiah is our divine Messiah, our divine messianic king. That's what it means that Jesus sat down at the Father's right hand. It means that he, Jesus, is our messianic king who is reigning now as God. And if we were to take all this in, like if we were to give honest attention to the testimony of Scripture about Jesus, if we were to look around this world at all the stuff around us, we would understand that Jesus is incomparable. He has no rival. He has no equal. Jesus is incomparable. But because there are all around us pools from somewhere else, because Apostasy is a possibility. The book of Hebrews actually welcomes comparisons. Jesus is incomparable, and yet the book of Hebrews says, try if you want. Go ahead. Bring whatever you want. Go find, go, go grab whatever you want. Put beside Jesus whatever you choose. Compare to Jesus whatever you want, and the verdict will always be the same. And the verdict is what we see here in verse 4. This is the first time that this word is used in the book of Hebrews. It's translated in verse 4 as superior. But it's a Greek word that's used seven more times in the book. And throughout the rest of the book, the word is translated better. That's what it means, better. Jesus is better. And if the main purpose of the book is to encourage us to endure, to not fall away, but to hold fast, and that means in order, to do, in order to do that, we have to look to Jesus, and looking to Jesus requires some level of comparison. We need to see that He is superior to every possible alternative. If all that's true, and it is, I think that we can summarize this entire book. This is like a spoiler alert, okay? This is the book. This is the year. This is what we're doing here, church. The whole summary is in those three words. Jesus is better. He is. And if you're going to hold fast to him, you have to know that. And so I challenge you with the book of Hebrews. Go get all your something else's. Call them up. Think about them. Go find all the something else's out there. Bring them all together. Put them up side by side and see that Jesus is better than every single one. And the question for us is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Now, the reason that some of you 
have not surrendered your life to Jesus is because you don't think that's true yet. You don't, see, if you've not surrendered your life to Jesus, but you're here, this is what's going on. Jesus is standing in front of your heart's face, and you're saying, I don't know. What else are you looking for? Just think, like, where else are you going to go? What, what, are you, what are you waiting for? What, what else? And we, should, we all should ask that. That question, throughout all of our lives, we come back to this. And, and this is why we need the book of Hebrews. The, Hebrews help, the book of Hebrews helps us here. This book shows us that Jesus is better to everything else. Compare him to anything, he's better. The book shows us that Jesus is better by helping us to see him, to see Christ exalted, bright and burning, full of power and purity. And would that God, church, like this is my prayer this year, would that God do such a work in our hearts that we would see him, that we would know he is better? Let's pray. Father in heaven, indeed, again, we ask that this year, through this book, through the book of Hebrews, make us as a church to behold your son. Moses prayed and he asked you to show him your glory. And we are asking the same thing when we ask you to show us Jesus. Make us to see Jesus, our prophet, our priest, our king. Make us to know that he is better. Make us to surrender everything that we are to him. For your glory, we pray these things, Father, for your glory and our eternal joy. In Jesus' name, amen.